Welcome to episode 66 of the Swamp Flicks podcast. My name is Brandon Lede. And I'm James Cohn. And this is the podcast version of the movie review website Swamp, Swamp Flicks. <laughs> we are recording in Mid-City, New Orleans, just outside by St. John at James's apartment. Uh, it's a spooky world outside, both in the fun way and in the not fun way. <laughs> uh, been the kind of slow start to the Halloween season for me. It's like watching these like spooky fucked up movies and like the world's fucked up outside. It's like not fun yet. I mean, what what is the Halloween season though? Is it like October? I think so. When it starts. Yeah, I talk to a lot of like movie people on the internet who basically this month binge as many horror titles as they can, almost like as like a self challenge. Like, can I watch? twice as many as i watched last year just keep like funneling them in i did do that uh like two years ago i think i watched like two or three a day for the month of october it's fun it is but fun. by the end of it you're ready to move on to maybe some romantic comedies or yeah. a little a little change of pace i think why i never do it too is because new orleans film fest is in the middle of october mm-hmm. and that is like a full week of just watching like three movies a day for me like in public uh, at the theater, so I just like would never be able to get to thirty-one by the end of the month. Because so the like baseline goal is like watch a movie, at least one horror movie a day that's mm-hmm. new to you the whole month, uh, and I could never possibly even try. Especially this year, because this is kind of like a fun announcement. I got Swamp Flicks approved for a media pass for the uh, New Orleans Film Fest. Nice, dude. So we're gonna be seeing slightly more movies than we usually do at that. And hopefully quicker lines and just like an easier time getting around. You're moving on up in the world, dude. Yeah, it's like slightly legitimizing. That's great. So uh, sometime in November, CC and I will do like a full roundup of everything we saw at the Film Fest. Um, But this month, you and I are going to cram in with Brittany uh, three podcast episodes in October. uh, All Halloween spooky themed. So that'll be our version of uh, Spooktober coverage. What have you been watching lately? Any spooky stuff? Well, I know we sort of talked about this a week or two ago, but I did see Mandy, which I feel like is perfect for this time of the year. I am so happy that movie's been sticking around. Like, yeah. When it was first announced it was going to play in theaters, it was supposed to be one night yeah. only. Or like a week, and then it was two weeks, and now it's... I think it might still be in the Yeah, they just renewed Broad. it for a fourth week, so it's been like a solid month of this like little movie that could. I mean, you've seen it, too. It was everything... I wanted it to be and more. It's the second movie this year where as soon as I got out, I texted you like, James, you have to go see this like while it's still in the theater. Yeah. And I'm glad I did see it in the theater because being around kind of other people and just laughing in certain points, but also some audible gasps at some of the extreme violence in there too. It was a very fun experience and also like being uh, slightly stoned going to see it and having the visuals, especially in the first half of the movie, kind of wash over you uh, was really nice. I know also like you're a big metal guy. It was pro- maybe one of the most, if not the most metal movie I've ever seen. Well, I made y'all watch like Deathgasm earlier this year, and I yeah. thought that was like the most metal movie I'd ever seen. I think Mandy's even more convincingly metal. I think Mandy is metal in a more ethereal sense. Like, I guess the difference would be Deathgasm was more like brutal death metal, metal, speed metal, thrash kind of vibe. And then this was that ethereal black metal shoegazy kind of feel, but both like metal as fuck. I read something that Johan Johansson, the guy who did the score and died earlier this year, 
his collaborators on it were members of Sun O and Wolves in the Throne Room. It was a combo that made sense in mm-hmm. retrospect. It was like, oh, I heard that like slow driving, like oh, especially the Sun O influence. Yeah. Just like yeah, the droning, just big bass heavy kind of chords. And Wolves in the Throne Room has that kind of like uh, it feels like a ritual when you're listening to it. And a couple of times when we saw them, the lights were like basically like stage lights. Well, and the like the like almost. light sage, you yeah. know, and it, yeah, it gives it this whole mystical sort of experience. But um, yeah, so Mandy was great. And besides that, and kind of a totally different genre, I've been watching Rodney Dangerfield films. I don't know if you're a fan of Rodney I love Dangerfield. him. He Do does you? not have a lot of great movies, though. No, he does. See, and that's what I've realized. I've seen three of them now. Um, I think my favorite might be Easy Money. I like that one. And. The movie only works because Ronnie Dangerfield is so likable. The premise is that he has to give up drinking and smoking weed and having sex for a year. And it's kind of the, you know, that archetypal character of he's like the womanizing drinking buffoon, but he has a heart of gold and everyone loves him, which could kind of like grow stale. But there's just something about him that's so, so likable. Like, Anything he's in, just looking at him with his eyes bugging out, making weird faces, is just like funny. Just him himself standing there being Ronnie Dangerfield is enough for these films to work, even if some of the jokes don't actually land. I think also he's got this like delivery style, this like old fashioned, you know, Catskills stand up humor where the rhythm of the way he delivers something is already funny. Like, even if you're not listening to the words, you're like sort of primed to laugh. Mm -hmm. Another thing I've noticed is, so besides him, I've also been watching like a lot of comedies from the eighties. Like I watched dirty rotten scoundrels, uh, Steve Martin, Michael Caine movie. And something I've noticed and something I've been really trying to hone in on is like, I found that comedies, especially from like bygone eras, sort of illuminate where we were as a culture more than other genres of films. So like things that we found funny in the like mid eighties, when a lot of these movies were coming out, you watch them now and they don't, you can tell it's off. They're a little regressive or they're not as mindful as we would want them to be. The eighties in particular was a pretty gross era for comedies. Like there's some kind of like frat boy, Reaganomics right. like vibe I, to that era. No, and that's it. I'm and I've been trying to put my finger on what happened because if you watch like old old comedies like the Marx Brothers, it's timeless. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it feels like something shifted around like Animal House, where it got sort of this misogynistic, douchey thing, and it took up until like the mid to late '90s for us to kind of do away with that and now we're in some new for lack of a better term like woken sense of humor so it's just interesting to watch some of these older comedies and see what people found funny back then so I don't, i'm gonna keep like digging in to some of these older ones because humor changes over time what was it about easy money that was like funnier than the other ronnie dangerfield movies or like held up better in that respect i think they're all pretty episodic like it's just individual just like him and joe pesci they're 
for instance, they're picking up his daughter's wedding cake and they get super stoned and drunk and end up getting in a car crash and the cake explodes all over the car and then they eat it because they're so stoned. And it's just like stupid and silly, but I still like laugh. Mm -hmm. And a lot of it, again, has to do with with him. I think what I liked about Easy Money, though, in particular, was how he doesn't learn a goddamn thing. <laughs> like, the whole thing is like, quit drinking and smoking and womanizing. And look, you've become such a better man. And then as soon as he can like, go back to doing those things, he does. And everyone's just kind of like, oh, it's yeah. great. Like, that's the guy we know and love. He didn't learn a lesson at all. That's kind of the phony thing about those, like, you know, Seth Rogen comedies that, like, grow up and become better people. And it's, like, weirdly moralistic, too. It's, like, you have to straighten up and become a, a man. You can't be a man baby your whole life. Right, and this lacks any moral uh, message. It's just, like, this is who this guy is. And <laughs> he makes the people around him laugh. And everyone's having a good time. And isn't that enough? So, yeah, I don't know. That's kind of the sort of stuff I've been getting into the last couple of weeks. What, what about you? I kind of went down a weird rabbit hole just based on what we're talking about today. Because uh, we're watching a movie from this guy, Jaume Colette Serra. Mm-hmm. I'm probably butchered that name. But um, he's the guy who directed uh, The Shallows and The Commuter and one of the movies we're going to be talking about later in the episode. And I really like his like directing style. He's got this like sort of comic book framing really intense camera angles and just and like zooms gimmicky. in and out. Of, yeah. Yeah. And I was looking at his like IMDb and noticed that his career started with these two big budget horror productions in like the early two thousands, which I thought was interesting. Really? What were they? Uh, the two first movies he made were both for this company that Joel Silver and Robert Zemeckis started in order to remake William Castle movies. And they did about three of those before they got bored and wandered off. The one that Jaime Colette Serra directed was called House of Wax from 2005. Was that, did that have Jessica Biel in it or something? It had or? Paris Hilton in it. Oh, I'm so, <laughs> Jessica Biel, I'm so sorry. I, I, I didn't want to look Jessica Biel was in the remake from around that time of uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I know that, God, I thought it was House of, did it have Tay Diggs? That is House of Haunted, on Haunted Hill, I think. Do all these movies? Uh, yeah, are just like, and they're all the same production coalescing company. Into one. Too. Okay, House of Wax though came after House on Haunted Hill and Thirteen Ghosts, which Thirteen Ghosts has an actress that looks a lot like Jessica Biel. I think that's what it is. Yeah, Thirteen she, Ghosts. Okay. Uh, I only know her from uh, Scary Movie, so she's playing like a Jessica Biel type in right. these films. The first two, House on Haunted Hill and uh, Thirteen Ghosts, were kind of okay. Uh, they come from this, like, really gross time in horror that's, like, this big-budget, slick, like, new metal soundtrack, uh, very CGI-heavy in a time where the CG just wasn't there yet, you know? Colette Sarah's movie came later than those. Like, 2005 was House of Wax. That's fairly recently. New metal's still on the radio. Paris Hilton's a star still. Like, it's like this weird hangover from, like, the early 2000s. <laughs> it was, like, the same year her, like, record came out. And honestly, she's not the worst part of the movie. Like, there are worst actors in the film. The grossest parts of the film are these, like, sort of leering shots of her through, like, night vision on a camcorder. Sort of, like, 
reliving the one night in Paris sex tape uh, that made her famous, oh. uh, which was kind of gross. And there's some like torture porny stuff from around that time that I never really cared for in cinema. You know, that hostile. Kind I mean, of... that is, that is the time when that was a big, you know, was saw and hostile. And really one of the worst aesthetics for like horror films around that time. Mm-hmm. But the movie gets more and more fun after it starts off gross. Like, while it's, like, these teens arriving in this, like, small town and camping out in the woods, it's got this, like you said earlier with the 80s comedies, it's got this very frat house style, like, offensive humor. Mm -hmm. And then once they actually start getting into the town, uh, where the mythology is that there's these two brothers who have continued their family's, like, wax museum after their abusive parents have died and expanded it to this larger... um, almost like an amusement park the size of a town Hmm. where they live alone with all these like fake citizens that are made out of wax. That's pretty creepy. And the house of wax that they live in, you know, it's like a regular wax museum where there's there's all these creepy mannequins around made of wax. It's since since it's a gross 2000s movie, they'll show the guy like sculpting like a perfect breast on like one of the mannequins. And so you get this like gratuitous like titty (laughs) shot. But the actual house itself, like the physical building is also made of wax. Oh, so uh, they took it very in a very literal, very literal, direction. <laughs> uh, to the point where the Robert Zemeckis uh, style of like exploiting the pra- the practical and the special computer effects, like all that you can, ends with the house collapsing in on itself while it's on fire, and everything's just warped because it's literally wax and it's just like melting all over the place. Uh, it looks really cool. Wait, Robert Zemeckis—he's the one that did Frighteners, right? Uh, he produced a lot of films, like, um, and he directed Back to the Future and Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Oh, Very, wow. like, effects-heavy okay. yeah. productions. Honestly, I'm not a huge Zemeckis fan because he's obsessed with effects. And, like, most of his films are... They rely. That's, like, the point, yeah. almost. I probably shouldn't share my unpopular opinions about Robert Zemeckis. <laughs> I could I could shit on Back to the Future even. Like, I'm not a fan of this guy. Uh, but I feel like here it works because you have this, like, ridiculous premise. You have Colette Sarah's sort of cartoonish eye that he shoots everything with. And then the big budget effects work of the town, like, melting because it's all made of wax. And all these creepy mannequins are just, like, pouring away. I can get, I can get down with that. That sounds cool, actually. And I, I think... Stuff like the two that came before, like 13 Ghosts and House on Haunted Hill, go in the other direction where they start off, you're like, oh, I can get into this. And then it just sort of drags and goes down and gets worse. Mm-hmm. Uh, this one works in the opposite direction where you're like, not sure about it. And then it just gets more and more absurd till it ends at its most ridiculous point. And it's a lot easier to feel good walking away from a movie like that. Mm-hmm. So not a bad debut, really. But his next movie for the same production company was called Orphan from 2009. Oh, I've seen Orphan. I didn't I know that was him. That's a great it. movie, yeah. Oh my god. And even that feels kind of like a remake of The Bad Seed. Totally. Uh, you know, it's or the like Omen or Yeah, this sort of cute precocious child that's like acting nice around anyone who asks questions but when they're alone with their parent like becomes this menacing force. Mm-hmm. Uh, the movie honestly has this sort of gross accidental message about like how you shouldn't adopt foreign children because you don't know where they come from or what their past might be. Uh, But if you don't like pay too much attention to the messaging or if you find that kind of like 
amusing the way I did in the in like a dark kind of way. Yeah. The movie is very twisty, very ridiculous, and I think what I've come to like about Colette Sarah's films is he's very gimmicky. So like the commuter is entirely set on a train and all the actions bound there or nonstop is all on a plane. Exactly. Or the shallows is all contained in this one rock where the shark is attacking one actress. Orphan treats each scene and each set piece that way, but it allows him to go off on all these tangents. So there's like all these resets. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's this one scene where the killer orphan child is chasing another child who's done her wrong on this like playset jungle gym. Uh, And it feels like a mini version of the commuter or the shallows where she's stalking this poor innocent young girl on the jungle gym and chasing her around. And he shoots the set as if it's this like haunted house, even though it's like monkey bars in a slide. His camera is always weaving any little nook and cranny he can find it swooping in and it's very dynamic camera work. So in kind of his bigger budget action movies, he does the exact same thing. He just has more money to work with and really takes that uh, technique to like kind of a ridiculous level. Yeah. And I, I think with orphan, it's just more enjoyable to me because it's reset every few minutes. Like there's a new set piece or a new toy for him to play with. Uh, and the movie has all these different influences and different um, tones that to someone might feel like a mess and like over the top. But like mm-hmm. my favorite movies are messy and over the top. And the twists that come late in the film about like the orphan's true identity and like what she will and won't do uh, to get the perfect family she wants goes to some really gross like jaw dropping places that are very far removed from like the bad seed uh, roots of the film. And I found them very enjoyable in a very trashy way. And it might be my favorite, my favorite movie from that director. I saw it in the theater and I remember really liking it, but I didn't, I think cause I was expecting just a certain type of movie. I wasn't really paying attention to the camera work and stuff like that. I was just kind of along for the ride. But now that I know more of his work, like I need to go back and revisit it. I'd recommend, like, you know, it's Halloween. We're going to watch some, like, spooky movies this month. I'd recommend watching both of these, but definitely a revisit of Orphan after, you know, getting familiar with, like, The Shallows and The Commuter and stuff, I think, would be worthwhile. I mean, that's a good segue into our... Yeah, we're going to be talking about one of his films for our movie of the month, so maybe we should get right into that. Uh, And later in the episode, we're going to be talking about more big-budget, action-y horror stuff. It's kind of the theme of the episode. And all that's coming up to you right Right now. now. Passenger on board this flight has threatened to kill someone every 20 minutes. Unless they're paid $150 million. And now three people are dead. The bomb will explode in less than half an hour. And they want you to believe that I'm responsible. And now it's time for our movie The Minute segment. This is where hosts of the show bounce back and forth recommending films to each other. It was James's turn to choose the movie for this episode. What did you make me watch? This one was a little different because I hadn't seen it before. But in the previous episode, we had talked about The Commuter, which I was a huge fan of. So it made me want to watch more of these kind of Liam Neeson, a man on a train or a man on a plane, a man trying to rescue his daughter. 
you know, these later stage Liam Neeson movies. They're like gimmicky versions of Taken, where he's like a suburban dad put in this like absurd heroic scenario. It's kind of like a B-level movie that's elevated to higher art just by like the acting and directing alone. So I really wanted to see nonstop because I'd heard uh, it's from the same director's commuter. And like we talked about before, same director as Orphan and House of Wax and The Shallows. And the Shallows. And so I, I just really wanted to see this movie. So it was kind of a dual movie of the month. Neither of us had seen it. So it was my first time watching it and I really enjoyed it. I probably enjoyed it more than The Commuter and more than any other movie I've seen by him. We had talked about Orphan, so maybe I need to reevaluate that one. But I thought this was like everything that a thriller should be from it, like checked all the boxes. I love these thrillers where it takes place on one isolated, you know, like it all takes place on a plane and it's one guy and he has odds stacked against him. It's this whole conspiracy and he's being framed and there's twists and turns and the action is jaw dropping. And I just thought it was a very, very effective modern thriller. Were you as impressed by it as I was? I, I put it about on par with the commuter. Um, it's just a different locale. And I think more when I was watching this, I was thinking about how, yeah, the Liam Neeson stuck in this like action rut that he's been in in the past 10 years, even though he's like, he's punching below his weight. Liam Neeson's a really great actor and he's just been doing the same like ex-military suburban dad put in a ridiculous scenario. Yes. Over, over and, and over, over again. Yeah. Whether he's like fighting wolves or he's like rescuing his daughter from abductors or whatever. Like it's definitely below his like punching weight, I think. But what struck me this time more so than the commuter is, you know, the director, obviously I'm getting more used to his style. I really like his style. He'll choose the most ridiculous (laughs) angle and the most ridiculous way to shoot something he can. And I think he likes working with these restrictions where he's like stuck in a bottled area. Right. It's like a technical challenge. Yeah. So you're in an airplane. There's not a lot of room for you to move the camera like handheld. So what he'll do is you'll swoop like above the seats to like create movement. So you don't feel like you're stuck or swoop from outside the plane through a window down the aisles to the back of the plane all in one continuous shot. Or like uh, Julianne Moore plays a passenger on the plane and he'll use the little overhead reading light from like nighttime flights to light her more specifically than other characters. Mm-hmm. So like everyone's sleeping, your, your eye is drawn to her because she has her little reading light on. Or um, even though we're talking about how he'll open up the confinement of the space with like all the CGI swooping, whenever he wants to make it feel constricted, he'll go into a like um, close quarters combat scene in like the airplane bathroom. And, like, really play out the claustrophobia of the space they're in. That scene is such a perfect example of his strengths as a director that he can create so much movement in a space that is literally, you know, a bathroom for one person. And it's like a thrilling fight scene. Not everyone can pull that off. That takes a tremendous amount of 
I don't talent for editing and shooting and getting the right angle. And yeah, it really does seem like he's trying to push himself as a technical director. And the last time I watched last episode, I talked about this. We, I watched uh, red eye, the Wes Craven movie. Mm. that's like set on a confined space on an airplane. Um, and that movie does a lot of the same things that this one does. And it came earlier, but it's a lot of like talking and conspiracy and stuff like that. And it goes to its own, fever pitch action over the top like technical play but that's all after they get off the plane mm-hmm. it's like there's like this like building tension while they're on the plane and then almost like a starting gun goes off and they all race off the plane and uh the action finally takes off mm-hmm. and all the tension that's built up is let out whereas uh how colette sarah who directs these films like he finds a way to actually like stage all of that ridiculous open action in like the confined space without actually having to leave it. Uh, I found that really impressive. And the story is not, it's pretty basic. I mean, you know, it's like a federal air marshal who he's like an alcoholic and is not the most stable guy. And he's getting text messages saying, we're going to kill a passenger every 20 minutes. If you don't deposit $150 million dollars, into your account so it's obvious from the beginning he's getting framed and the uh character that dies every 20 minutes is someone that dies at his hands as his hands so it's like <laughs> oh who is the hijacker terrorist and it, it's the exact same dynamic that happens in commuter it's not like really an original concept it's all in the execution i'd say both of those owe a lot to speed as well you know if the bus goes below a certain mile per hour then a bomb will go off like it's like a it's more of a premise than a plot it's like speed mixed with hitchcock and also like kind of the murder on the orient express thing like the conspiratorial nature you know a lot of the movie is people giving weird glances at each other and you're trying to figure out like ooh, what's Were they in a relationship? Are they in on this together? Like trying to play like psychologists with the different passengers. And that's sort of the fun in these kind of movies is trying to pick out like who is the culprit. And um, again, like I think it's really about execution. And this movie's executed really well to where I did not see the ultimate twist that happens. And I think that's like a big advantage you can have with these kind of movies. If you can make the audience not know where you're going with it. You know what I mean? I think where I'm a little tickled by this and like almost an ironic way is how much it's playing into like conservative conspiracy theories. There's this sort of Alex Jones kind of like undercurrent, like Infowars conspiracy where like there's this big government maybe even more so in the commuter than in this one, but there's like this big government conspiracy that only this one tough guy dad can punch his way into the problem going away. But see, I thought this one was like a little deeper than commuter in that it actually did. I think had something to say about like TSA and the Patriot act and the surveillance state. There's a lot of post 9 11 anxiety in this one. And in red eye, I would say, yeah, about how like the people that are supposed to protect us become our overseers and like oppressive. So I thought there's a little more to chew on with the political aspect than in commuter or red eye. And there's a there's a little play here too about expectations about archetypes because there's you know 
hundreds of characters on this like plane uh this is the massive like commercial flight uh, and they keep foregrounding this one muslim doctor because uh, you know after 9-11 there's this whole racial profiling conversation in, right. in the news and it's like oh you think this guy is going to be the one who's behind it all but he's just like a helpful doctor every time someone's injured they bring him in but before they introduce that aspect they keep like passing him over in this like very like foregrounded kind of way where like your eye is supposed to be drawn to this like muslim character before they reveal you know this is one of the good guys don't worry about him yeah it's weird because it's obvious what they're doing yeah i was like well it's obviously not the muslim guy yeah (laughs) no come on but again like i think that is part of the political message of the movie so there's a little bit of chew on there but it's i don't think that's really the main thrust of what he's trying to do he's just trying to make a B-level thriller in the most effective action-oriented way possible. That's a really smart way to limit your budget. Like, even with the commuter on this, like, train that's passing through the city, there's a lot of exterior shots when they're still in daylight and all these different locations they have to film. On the airplane, you have, like, a set number of extras. You have this, like, confined space. A lot of your, like, major effects work are computer Mm -hmm. effects. So you can shoot very quickly, I think. He finds a way to turn that into this, like, really thrilling, over-the-top, like, dynamic. Maybe I'd put there up as, like, one of the most impressive things about the film is the way he shoots text messages. Yeah. Liam Neeson gets, like, blurry from, like, almost having a concussion, and, like, the text message comes into focus. Or, like, later he breaks his phone. And And the the, text, uh, the screen is broken. And it starts really subtle, too. Like, the first couple things you'll notice is the phone overlaps the text message on the screen. So there's, like, a layering uh, so the text message isn't like completely in the foreground. It's like like behind his hand. And honestly, I haven't seen text messages incorporated in this exact way since. Um, not that I think they need to, but it's kind of funny how like inventive and like gimmicky yeah. they are, I think. Commuter did it a little bit. And well, also we've talked about, you know, movies like The Den and even Searching or movies that like kind of splice technology with film, but yeah, I've never quite seen the particular gimmicks at work here with the, you know, the screen being broken and all that. It's really like innovative, I think. Cause yeah, I haven't seen much. And I'm not even saying that movies like that. should do these exact gimmicks, but when you're watching them, you're like, why isn't this being played with more? You know, like I feel like a lot of text messages that show up in movies and it's, presented in the same way every time mm-hmm. like even like a lot of rom-coms now will have text message exchanges between the two leads and i'm totally fine with that but i feel like they're kind of like getting lazy with how that's displayed on screen you, even with the like suggested um or what's it called like autocorrect yeah that happened in like yeah like have fun with it play around with it like that's totally gonna be a thing in cinema for a while or i don't know for the forever until we invent like direct to brain messaging like i don't see where else it could go yeah for a long time (laughs) like we're gonna have to deal with text messages and film and this does it in a really effective cool way yeah i I would put that right up there with like the twist of if you don't forward this money to me i'm going to kill a character every 20 minutes and then the twist is like actually liam neeson is going to be killing the a new character every 20 minutes i found that gimmickry right up there with the text messages. Those were like my favorite two aspects of the movie was like how he was getting framed 
and the mystery is almost like, well, how are they going to trick him into killing another person? (laughs) I like how the very first scene we see with him, he's like mixing whiskey in his cup with like his toothbrush. It's obvious. This is like an unhinged man. And just like him on the flight and badgering passengers and like assaulting people and handcuffing them and accidentally causing people to have heart attacks. And it's like, this guy's a fucking madman. Like someone stop it. Like he, you could see how from the outside he looks like a villain. So I, I kind of like that play. It's like the good guy looks like the bad guy from our perspective. Is that a political thing too? Where it's like, uh, now you can see how someone could be framed to be this evil terrorist, but they're only doing things for their own circumstances and their own self-survival. It just makes them look crazy to outsiders. I, I mean, I took it more like figures of authority that have power, like TSA or the police from a certain perspective they look like evil monsters abusing their power and maybe if you look at it from the position they're in uh it's a fucking hard job and um they're just trying to protect people but it's kind of a thankless thing that's sort of how that's sort of how i took the whole kind of message of this movie but it's not a message film it's just fun yeah it's more about the device of like how much fun can this director have in this small space and what ways is this plot going to work itself out? Because uh, it, it seems like they keep painting themselves on a corner and then they open up the, the story to like a new angle uh, every few minutes. And I found that very interesting for sure. And what, what I liked about this and The Commuter too, because I do see them as kind of not one and the same, but very similar gimmick going on. is like, you know, from the very beginning, this plane is going to crash this train is going to crash. Like, you know, it's going to lead there. And it's just like fun to see how we drag it along and how we get there. But I would like to see the director kind of maybe for his next film, sort of like go outside of the singular location. And what, what can he do with um, more space? I get like, he can do so much with the confined space. Like what could he do? If it was unlimited. I think that's why I liked Orphan a lot. It, it, mm. it seemed like I'm playing with a new toy every few minutes instead of like focusing on the same toy for like 90 minutes. And I think that might be annoying to some people. I've seen a lot of like fiercely negative reviews to Orphan, not even on like a moralistic level because it is kind of like a morally gross film. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, just like, oh, it's too gimmicky. It's too ridiculous. Each twist was more ridiculous than the last. I'm like, yeah, give me more. Um, <laughs> I so, I sort of felt like the orphan the same way I felt about um, the boy. Oh, love it. Right. Kind of the same (laughs) thing. Like the twists are just so ridiculous and they pile on top of each other. But I love that sort of thing. Nonstop. I feel like plays it pretty safe. I mean, it's a mainstream thriller that I think didn't make pretty good money. And, you know, it's an effective popcorn flick, but I do kind of want to see him go back to more, I guess, experimental I mean, he is experimenting with mainstream films, but just something a little stranger, you know? I think he's He made, has the talent to do it. I think he's made at least four movies with Liam Neeson at this point, like thrillers. What were the other... I don't, I don't know the titles off the top okay. of my head because I haven't seen them, but he's made four of these Liam Neeson thrillers. He's made at least three horror films, if you want to count The Shallows as like 
one of his horror like big budget mm-hmm. horrors. Yeah, it's it's time for him to switch gears again. Uh, that's what I feel too. Yeah, but he definitely has my attention. Uh, and these are very attention grabbing movies because of like how ridiculous their premises are. Yeah, I think he has the technical chops to do something truly great. Um, I, I just feel like for now or for the past like few films, it feels like he's played it a little safe. Like he's so good at these Liam Neeson thriller that like he's churning them out, which is kind of endearing a little bit. Like he's so good at it. He can just kind of do it with his eyes closed, but I want to see him do something really out there. Do you think he should do like an under siege on a boat film first before he moves on? So you can like cover all Complete. the, uh, <laughs> the traveling. Well, uh... I just, I want to know what the other two Liam Neeson movies are. Cause I feel like why hasn't he done one on a boat yet like come on maybe he has maybe maybe i missed it we got a plane we got a train <laughs> spaceship Liam neeson in space there yeah <laughs> that would be the ultimate like just call it quits after that <laughs> and yeah i want to see him do something else but for what these movies are like they're some of the most effective movies in this genre in recent memory yeah they're a lot of fun MCA Universal Home Video, packed with all the action, mystery, thrills, spectacular special effects, and dark humor of the original. And it doesn't end there. Coming soon, Darkman 3, Die, Darkman, Die. Darkman 2, The Return of Durant, on video cassette. It begins again, July 11th, 1995. So I actually think this was a really good pairing. Because uh, we were talking about how May Colette Sarah's work having this like kind of comic book angle, picking the most ridiculous, swoopy, gimmicky, shoddy Ken in mm. every single frame. And there are very few directors I feel like epitomize that style. I'd say right up there with Peter Jackson would be Sam Raimi. And we're going to be talking about the Dark Man series, which was, you know, Sam Raimi's baby from conception. How do you feel about Sam Raimi as like a director? I was going to ask you that because I feel like we've talked about the fact that you don't like. No, not at all. I don't Sam like Sam Raimi. <laughs> um, when I first watched the Evil Dead movies in like high school, I was all about it. The dark sense of humor with the gore as like an adolescent male. It just like an army of darkness. I was like, yeah, this is my aesthetic. I love these movies. I've watched them recently and they don't hold up as well for me, but. Something I've always appreciated about his work, even when he went on to do the Spider-Man movies and his later stuff, is like he always has a good sense of humor, even if you're not really about some of the icky stuff and the Evil Dead. Yeah, the tree rape scene is really hard. Yeah, to I know. I know it's it's fucking awful, but I do like his sense of humor, and I think watching Dark Man and then kind of comparing it to the sequels that came after made me realize like his style as a director and what it is that I like about him. And the number one thing is like he can find humor in in everything. And like also the way he shoots scenes too. It's like he's a very fun director. And so I've grown to appreciate him more. And also like watching these movies too has helped 
with that process. But yeah, I've come around more to Sam Raimi. I think I just find him particularly frustrating because he, like you said, does not take the work very seriously on like a tonal level, even though he obviously is passionate about it. But the tones are all over the place. Yeah. It's supposed to be this sort of Looney Tunes over the top party almost. Hmm. And I really like that. Like Dead Alive from Peter Jackson is one of my favorite films ever. And I feel like is in a very Sam Raimi-esque like realm. But for some reason, the Evil Dead just never clicked with me. I think it's because I saw them in college and not in like middle school and high school. Right. I think I was just like a little too old by the time I got to those. I find Bruce Campbell in particular like very exhausting. He's like Jim Carrey at his worst, <laughs> and then like multiplied. Oh, man. well, I I'm a huge I'm a Jim Carrey fan. I'm I'm not like necessarily going to go to bat for Bruce Campbell because his filmography doesn't really. I mean, what he did, Evil Dead and like Army of Darkness, and then what, Bubba Hotep. See, I don't mind Bubba Hotep very much. I think that was really, just, I hated that movie. <laughs> I have to revisit it. It's been too long. That was like a long time ago that came out. No, I'm not gonna like say Bruce Campbell is great on any level, but I would say him exhausting me was like the number one reason why Evil Dead never clicked. That whole series. Well, it, he has this shtick that he's just hamming it up the whole time. So I see the comparisons to Jim Carrey. But yeah, I think Evil Dead is one of those things like if you see it young enough at the perfect age, it clicks. But if you're watching it as like a fully grown adult, you don't quite connect with it. And you you would think that would be the same thing with Darkman, too, because it's in the same vibe. This is not like a deviation from Sam Raimi's usual shtick. Like this is prime Sam Raimi material right here. And I saw Darkman for the first time, I want to say two years ago. So I was about 30 years old. Oh, you didn't see it when you were a kid? No. I saw it when I was like 12, 13. I thought it was fucking awesome. I'm jealous because I love it now. And I feel like at 12, I would have loved it like 10,000 times more. But see, watching it now, I realize like, oh, that was kind of inappropriate. Like there was some dark, messed up stuff. But you can also see why a kid would be drawn to it as well because it it is more so than a lot of other quote-unquote like comic book movies this one feels like it has the vibe of an actual comic book and that that's like the thing that stuck out most to me like watching it again i was like oh of course this is why kids would be into it but also why i would be into it now it just like it feels like i'm watching a living comic and if you look at the film's style Whenever movies look like this, it's usually because a director is trying to recreate specific comic book frames or recreate the feeling of a pre-existing comic book. Uh, Sam Raimi created this Darkman character from, from scratch, scratch, yeah, and he's not recreating pre-existing material. This is just his style. Like, if you look at the Evil Dead movies, they're also framed in this very like superhero comic kind of way, and that's just like just his sensibility is is along those lines. I was reading that he had tried to get the rights to like Batman and to do a superhero movie and he kept getting denied. So he was like, well, fuck it. I'm just going to make my own superhero. And it, he made this like kind of anti superhero. Like he's dressed in a cloak he found in the garbage. He's got scars on his face. He doesn't really do superhero things. He kills people out of like malice and in really grotesque sort of ways. But he kind of created his own 
superhero mythology. And something I thought was interesting was apparently they came out with a comic book after the movie was released, which I don't I don't know of any other example oh, where like, that happened. Uh, Robocop. Was there a Robocop? comic yeah i have a couple issues with that (laughs) there's a couple like 80s you know things like that where there was like very inappropriate like kids saturday morning cartoons and like comic book lines and action figures and you know remember when like robocop was on like wcw oh like it's like he lets him out of the cage it's like stuff for children and then you watch the films themselves and like it's like hard r like gore fests i feel like dark man's in that same sort of like home video market like 12 year olds watching this inappropriately sweet spot in, in that like late 80s, early 90s, like cusp. Darkman feels like it's like B level movie that's elevated again by like Liam Neeson's acting in the, in the first movie and then Sam Raimi's direction. And again, what you find in the sequels is it's lacking that. And that's what's the really stark contrast of like why the first. Darkman works so well and then the sequels are so weak. I found it's like all in the kind of intangible qualities. Like on the surface, they should all be this B-level crap. But something that he does and that the actors do that kind of elevates it, especially in this original Darkman movie. Well, like you said, he was competing with Tim Burton for like the Batman rights for Warner Brothers to get that job. And Tim Burton obviously won out to great financial success for years and years. Um, so Sam Raimi was like, okay, I'll make my own goth superhero. And he wrote a short story as sort of a pitch and based his character off of the Lon Chaney Phantom of the Opera, like that Universal Monsters, like early 1920s silent horror stuff. Uh, and also um, David Lynch's Elephant Man was another influence mm-hmm. on the film. And he creates this character originated by Liam Neeson in this first movie from 1990. Darkman is a scientist who is researching synthetic skin. So it's basically like 3D printing of like body parts. I mean, it's total pseudoscience bullshit. And very bad CGI. Very, very bad. It doesn't matter. Um, Well, the gimmick, though, is that the flesh that they create, they can create a perfect replica of any human body part. So like if I scanned your face, I could like be James for a day. Except that after 100 minutes of sunlight... It just melts. Well, 99 minutes yeah. to be exact. They they keep hearkening on that over and over. Like 99 minutes is the exact cutoff. When yeah, hundreds of barrier. To, yeah, it just starts to disintegrate. This gives the movie like two opportunities. One is that Liam Neeson gets to do these like sort of philosophical questions. Like, what is it about the dark? What secrets does it hold? And these like sort of like Batman overtones. Also, different actors get to play Darkman throughout the film because once he is attacked and horrifically scarred by mobsters, uh, then he starts creating fake versions of their faces and Mm -hmm. framing them for petty crimes because the corruption does not allow them to get convicted for the bigger crimes they're obviously guilty of. So, like, he'll pose as, like, a mob boss with their, like, synthetic face on and, like, rob a convenience store and smile directly at the camera to, like, try to get arrested. Well, it also leads to scenes where he's in the skin and he also like comes into contact with the person that he's doppelgangering. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So a lot of awkward moments of someone looking at hey, themselves. Hey, that's me. Hey, what up? <laughs> it works. It's really good. And I think the brilliant thing of that is that's not his superpower. 
his superpower is that when he is horrifically scarred and almost killed by these mobsters, the stress of the scenario makes him super strong. Like it breaks his brain and the film goes into these like cosmic freakouts is what I would call them. It kind of reminded me of some scenes in altered states. The really like trippy where you're going inside the mind of someone and like the cosmos are just exploding and you're like going deep into the psyche and all that kind of weird shit. And the difference I think is that in altered states and in uh, beyond the black rainbow, there's a really good sequence of that yeah. too. Those are really drawn out in these cosmic freakouts. It's so quick. It's like a succession of comic book frames where Liam Neeson makes this face where he's like getting super stressed and the world around him breaks in this sort of like green screen effect. And yeah, it goes into these like Ken Russell sort of psychedelic freakouts, but they're very rapid. And then the world comes back together. So you get like a flash of like the turmoil in his mind. Mm. And then the world just sort of like reassembles. And I love that flash imagery. Like that's some of the best stuff in any of these uh, dark man movies. When they, it, it recurs throughout. I mean, there's at least one of those sequences in each of the movies. I'm sure you would agree with this, but on that same level, like there's a scene in the very first dark man movie where Liam Neeson and his lady, Francis McDormand, which is weird. Apparently Sam Raimi was living with the Coen brothers at the time. They've worked on a lot of movies together, like blood simple and a few other, like, yeah, they've like written stuff together. So he cast her in this and that's his love interest. And, after he gets horrifically burned uh, by these gangsters and he's wearing the fake skin, and he takes her out to the carnival. Best scene in the film. Best scene, best scene in the whole series. Honestly, watching it again, like one of the best scenes ever. I yeah, I agree. It's so fucking <laughs> good. He he's just trying to win her the the elephant, and he's doing you know the the old carnival trick where you got to throw the baseball at the three bottles and. The guy's trying to rip him off saying he wasn't behind the line. And like you said, this cosmic energy pulses through him and he gets so angry and he breaks the guy's fingers and he steals the pink elephant. And he's just here. Take your fucking elephant. Take the fucking (laughs) elephant. And he's running away and his face is like boiling. Oh, my God. That is like seriously a great, great scene. Oh, I love it so much. The tension there is that since he's been scarred by this horrific trauma, he has this sort of private, you know, fan of the opera, like brooding in his own doom and gloom alone in his like burnt out science lab, continuing these experiments to try to break the 99 minute barrier or whatever. Mm. And that scene has the tension of him trying to pretend to be normal still. And it's got this like sort of soft romantic tone to it like it's a scene from a rom-com but all these like deep traumatic like anger issues keep bubbling to the surface and he can't contain them to the point where his face is literally melting one then you get these like really extreme angles to like very sharp angles that just makes it more extreme and it's actually something the coen brothers do too where they frame people like from really extreme angle angles to make them seem grotesque. And so like the whole scene is like just so perfect and nothing else in the series quite reaches that level. And I think the character so good as well is like a hopeless romantic. I think that's like part of his 
fan of the operaness is that like he's always longing after these women that he can't be with because he can't be a normal person anymore. He needs to find like his Catwoman, you know, someone who's like on his level of like freakdom uh, that he never like actually achieves again. And I think that scene works on like a dramatic level on top of just being this like really fun thing to watch. Like Francis McDormand and him are trying to like piece this relationship back together after his life's been torn apart. Uh, and he really wants to make it work. And the frustrations of that, like tearing at himself is like really dramatically compelling on top of it being like a ridiculous comic book freak out. But doesn't that kind of highlight why Liam Neeson and his approach to the character was so much better than, um, what was the actor's name in the second Arnold Vosloo, who I know from the mummy. I knew him from hard target. And that was all. Is that the Jean Claude Van Damme? Yeah, oh, he was in that. Yeah, but it, there's something about Liam Neeson's betrayal, and I think it's maybe the first act of Dark Man, where it's just him and Francis McDormand like doing couple stuff, and he just comes across as like a likable, sympathetic kind of goofball, and you get more invested in the character than you do with uh, the other actor. Arnold Vosloo. <laughs> It's not a real person. Yeah. <laughs> like he's he's not a compelling actor. I think the difference is that he's Liam like Neeson rip off uh, Billy Zane. Yeah, sort of with like a vaguely European, European accent. European accent. What when it shifts in the second and third movie to him portraying Darkman? I just like it's a harsh adjustment. Yeah, for sure. And I just don't feel it anymore. Yeah. And again, like that goes to Liam Neeson's skills as an actor i think he does have a very particular take on the character whereas Vaslu is just playing him as this like any superhero character it's just kind of like a bland everyman superhero there's no he's kind no of like angle bruce, on it yeah he's yeah. kind of like a bruce wayne just like boring um yeah I, I think that has a lot to do with why the first film works so well and the sequels don't work as well i think the sequel at least at first, I think they're focused on the sort of boring parts of Darkman, um, like the crime fighting aspect and him hanging out in his lair with his cat. Uh, <laughs> not the most fun parts, except in the first Darkman. That's the second best scene in the movie where he gets really angry at his own cat. And he's like, what, you think I should put on a hat and do a little dance for you because I'm a freak? And, they, <laughs> and he starts he doing a little jig dressed like uh, the Tin Man from Wizard of Oz. Right. And again, like with the the Bruce Wayne comparisons in the two sequels, he's like living in the subway and he has this train cart system. He has his own like little bat cave. It just feel it feels like what we've kind of seen before. Well, I think I can get into why that doesn't work quite as well as it should in the sequels. Mm -hmm. uh, the first one is called Darkman 2, The Return of Durant. Uh, this is from 1994, so it's like a full four years after the other Darkman. I think it got greenlit because Darkman was a big success on home video. Not that it didn't make money in the theaters, but like it made money in the theaters, and then it like doubled its money once it got to like VHS. Mm -hmm. And by this time, Sam Raimi was producing a lot of TV, uh, like daytime syndicated TV, like Xena and Hercules were like two series he worked on heavily. Um, and this has that same sort of like daytime TV quality, the two sequels. They were produced at the same time. And this Return of Durant, Darkman 2, was actually supposed to be the third film in the series. 
Right, yeah. And when it's introduced, it takes a lot of stuff for granted. In the second film, he's already living in this like subway bat cave area where he gets to it by this like caboose that he drives around. So, and it's so lame. He's dude. got his like cat down there and he watches uh blockbuster VHS tapes and like Also there's I think it's in the third one Die Dark Man Die where there's a straight up Universal Studios oh, yeah. ad in the middle of the movie. You know, pretty shameless. Pretty shameless. <laughs> and I think the reason the second one doesn't work is because it's out of order. It just feels like weak repetitions of the movie you just watched. It opens with like a highlight reel of the first Dark Man. Which I don't know if you caught this. I'm glad you brought that up because Okay, they do it twice. They do it in the sequel and then the third movie. They do this flashback. In the first sequel, you can actually see Liam Neeson's face getting dunked into the acid or whatever. And then I guess they caught the mistake. And in the third one, they edit that out. And I don't think it has to be a mistake. I think it's built into the series that Liam Neeson isn't dark man at this point because dark man's face gets burned off in this like mobster attack in the first film. Right. And the sort of like gimmick of the character is that he could be anybody. Like he frames all these mobsters by adopting their different faces. Well, literally Bruce Campbell at the end of the first, right. Movie. The tease at the end of the first one is like, okay, Bruce Campbell's going to take off in the sequel and take over Liam Neeson's character. They don't explain why Vosloo's accent is so different than Neeson's. Cause he's not an Irish gentleman the way Neeson is. But I think the face thing they do get around, but it's also part of like the sequencing of the films is off because in the third film, Die Dark Man Die, he actually prints Arnold Vosloo's face and like dons it for the first time. Oh, you're okay. And in, I see. I see what you're. I see what you're saying. And in the third film, we get a lengthy introduction to his lair. Mm-hmm. In Die Dark Man Die, it starts with Dark Man showing off his subway, reintroducing you the cat. And, and I think in the best shot in either of the sequels, taking off the face he was wearing and hanging on the coat rack. Like, <laughs> honey, I'm home. Like, he's just taking off <laughs> right, his hat. Right. So I think the sequencing, I think they really wanted to get back to having the villain from the second movie return and, like, make it feel like it's a continuation of it. Because Liam Neeson's presence missing is such, like, a huge hole in the center of the film. Mm-hmm. They're like, oh, but the villain's back. The return of Durant is, like, the uh, the selling point of the film. But no one really cares about the villain from Darkman. And that's another thing, too. It's, like, Durant's, like, he's okay as the villain. Like, I get what you're saying, and I feel like the sequencing would have worked better if you're thinking about it as, like, episodes in a TV show, kind of. It would make sense for the third film to come second. Because that character, the villain at least, feels like kind of a one-off kind of thing that Darkman has to extinguish and then for the final act he has to confront his nemesis from the first film and once he defeats him it's kind of come full circle and but the way it's laid out it doesn't really click in that way you know what I'm saying the second one feels like filler it feels like a like it should re- be the end of the story him killing Durant the like guy that did this to him in the first place should be the end of the series and then the third one with this kind of new villain should be in the middle as sort of the filler 
Do we have anything really interesting to say about the second one before moving on? Because I found it like really just not interesting. There's a, there's a couple one-liners I thought was funny, but I really don't have much to say about it. No, I mean I no. Yeah. <laughs> it felt like a I mean I mean I know it was direct to video and all that, but it really just felt like a pilot for a TV series. And there was a TV series later uh after these movies sort of like ran out of the steam. They there, did, they did a pilot that never aired for okay. for a TV series. The same way that RoboCop had a, like a pilot for a live action series that never really took off either. And honestly, Darkman 2, The Return of Durant feels more like RoboCop than it does like Darkman. Mm-hmm. Like he runs around sort of like stopping different gangsters that have nothing to do with any of his romances. And to me, like I said earlier, like Darkman's like a hopeless romantic. That's his like weakness. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. There's like a scene in the early in the film where he like stops a mobster from doing something. And the guy's like, what the hell are you? And he's like a concerned citizen. It's like, that is a RoboCop line. That is not a Darkman line. Well, cause they establish in the first Darkman and w- what makes the first one work so well is there's this arc to his character where in the first act, he's a really lovable, sympathetic, hopeless romantic. The second act, he is forced to do really awful, uh, vengeful things out of hate. And then by the end of the movie, he shuns his lover in saying like, no, I can't be with you because my heart is taken over by blackness, essentially. And like, you wouldn't want to be with me. So it kind of has this nice... Thing where he's come to grips with the fact like his internal emotional state has changed but then that gets kind of undermined in the second film because it's just none of that is present it's just lifeless and there's no there's really no nothing like at least in the third one there's a very at least i thought interesting subplot with him kind of falling in love with oh yeah the gangster's <laughs> wife and his daughter and he wants his family that he can never have and he's treating them you know better than they've ever been treated before and i did think the plot wise the third one was was actually very good and the villain was much more interesting too played by jeff fahey who was also the villain in psycho 3 psycho yeah which we talked about recently and i thought he was like a good douche evil jerk in both films. He hams it up really well. He's got the slick back, like almost wall street kind of hair. He's just got these like penetrating eyes too. Like he's a much better villain than Durant. I think Durant makes these like Zoolander faces that are like goofy and like a good, like almost Dick Tracy villain kind of way. But I think the mistake they make in return of Durant, the second dark man movie is that they like have him talk a lot. And there's a lot of scenes of dialogue where he's like commanding his goons to do this or that. And the entire motivation he has is just like revenge on Darkman from like the actions of the first film. And it's just not that compelling. Yeah, he just wants to like get big guns. And... Yeah. So the motivation in, in Darkman 3, Die Darkman Die, is that Jeff Fahey's character is a mob boss a lot like Durant. And what he wants is to harness the superpower that Darkman has to create like super villains. Yeah. Basically. The, the more stressed out Darkman gets, the stronger he is. And Jeff Fahey's character wants to like bottle that up and like inject his goons with it uh, and make them these like rage 
freaks. It's like the, roid rage. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And meanwhile, Darkman's work is being stolen by this guy, uh, and he wants to get it back from him. So he poses as him to get inside of his house, where he accidentally falls in love with his wife and kid and gets to like live this sort of like fantasy life as like a normal suburban dad, mm-hmm. which leads to two very ridiculous sequences. Uh, one where he attends a child's play as her father mm-hmm. watching her live out beauty and the beast. Speaking of like hopeless disfigured romantics right. <laughs> um, and another where he accidentally shows up during a surprise birthday party and he has I, to continue to pretend to be this guy. He has to like play the piano. He's supposed to be, this great pianist and he has to like <laughs> explain like chopsticks it? with his dog yeah, or like or twinkle twinkle or yeah what is it i forget but yeah no those are i don't know that's really getting at the heart of like the dark man character like i feel like die dark man die has it more figured out about who this character and this superhero actually is it's like an interesting plot too like creating super villains from the dna of the hero. And I think it does more with the sort of comic book nature of it too. It still doesn't have the ridiculous, like Sam Raimi angles and stuff. It's still sort of like daytime TV flat the same way the second movie is. But early in the film, before he falls in love with this mobster's wife, he falls in love with this like evil scientist woman who's actually been hired to like steal his like stress strength, a little misogynistic characterization there. Well, that, and also like that's, something that runs throughout all these films. It's like, there's always like a sub villain and then a main villain, but it's always very obvious. Like even in the first movie, the first time we meet Francis McDormand's boss, we're like, Oh yeah, that guy's like probably the slime ball that's running this whole thing. And it's the same way in the third movie. Like she's flirting with him and trying to get him on her side. And you're just like, wait, no, she's obviously like a bad guy. So maybe dramatically that's not compelling, but when she puts him under an anesthesia for research and he has Mm -hmm. like a nightmare about like her true nature and she's like, you're a freak. And she's stabbing him in the neck with a syringe and he starts having those cosmic freakouts again where like the world is crumbling around him and this like sort of Ken Russell psychedelia. That stuff's great. Well, and also I felt like die dark man die was a little gorier. Oh, definitely. Then the Cause there's scenes with him like pulling things out of his head, like performing self-surgery. That's really gruesome. Yeah. They implant this like sort of surveillance device slash like shot collar thing in his neck and, or his head. And he removes it himself and then throws it at a goon's eye. And it just like eats this like villain's eye. I was watching parts of this one in public uh, at like a coffee shop and I had to like, minimize the screen and cover it up a little bit. It's like, Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. Cause no, I, after I the second one, bit. I wasn't, yeah, I wasn't Ugh. prepared for that. Yeah. It was, it was pretty gross. And yeah. I think, I think that character, she is like a very like evil beguiling woman who uses her sexuality as a weapon. It's very, it's a little misogynistic, but the actress has a lot of fun with it. When she gets caught cheating with the villain, like the villain's uh, wife walks in and she's like, Oh, I can see you're studying up on trash. And the doctor's like, I have a PhD in trash. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, like stuff like that I thought was very fun. She's very hammy. Um, what was her other line that I really liked? She says, life's a bitch and so am I. It's like almost like drag queen-y, like mm-hmm. villainy. I think this one got the tone a lot more than the second one. Uh, I think burying it after the second one was a mistake. 
Like if they had started with this one, even though it doesn't have the Durant like familiarity, I think people might have been a lot more like willing to like follow the series. Yeah, I just imagine like how you could have saved the series as a whole because I know we've talked about Psycho and how the sequels were actually really good and kind of furthered, even though there were some like plot canon inconsistencies, like each one kind of built upon what came before it and it was a good overall series. I don't feel the same way really about Dark Man. I feel like it's pretty disjointed and I think it could have been saved by maybe having the third film second and then having this showdown with Durant have like a better plot, something not based around like just rehashing old huge guns. I don't, yeah. There was like a giant laser cannon. Yeah. I don't know. You could have done, I don't know. You could have reworked it in a way that was more compelling. I, I do think the die dark man die had a lot going for it and it kind of knew what the dark man character was about more than, uh, the second film did. I think Die Dark Man Dies worth a watch. If if you're ever inclined to like watch a direct to video sequel to something like that's, I think it's a worthwhile fun film. It's not nearly as good as Dark Man. Like Dark Man to me is like a five star, like over the top action horror. This one has its moments, but it's not ever going to compete with that. And I think the difference between this and like the Psycho sequels is that Anthony Perkins was with Psycho throughout. And you could tell he was like invested in the character, especially when the character when he directed Psycho Three, mm-hmm. and he brought in those like Ken Russell touches from working with him. It felt like a passion project. Uh, the passion is sort of like dried out in this Dark Man series very quickly. Well, like you said, they were developing a TV show, and the sequels feel like episodes of a TV show. And then there's like immense or intense moments of like gross out gore feel like a weird intrusion on that feeling. Like I did not expect it to go to those places based on like the production quality. Yeah. It's like they were just trying to keep with the hard R precedent that they had set, but it didn't really fit for the latter films. Yeah. I think the series is broken though. Like without Anthony Perkins anchoring psycho, like, Liam Neeson leaves Darkman. The only way you could keep this series going in any viable way is if Bruce Campbell did take it over. And I know I, know I started this conversation saying mm-hmm. I don't like Bruce Campbell. I think like a strong personality. Oh like uh, yeah, that strong charismatic actor. Yeah, even Die Darkman Die. I like that film. I thought it was fun. It I, has nothing to do with Darkman himself. Arnold Vosloo. Yeah, it's like <laughs> the plot around him is interesting. But yeah, his performance itself is like pretty, pretty lame. whatever. <laughs> I mean, it's other actors as Darkman in disguise that like sell the best parts. Like Which, when when Jeff Fahey is like playing Darkman as the mobster, like it's those good. are the most compelling aspects of the film. Yeah, and w- one last like I don't know. I kept coming back to like I guess plot holes or whatever. But okay, he can obviously put on other people's skin and their face but he can't change his height or weight so i'm just wondering like when he puts on the mask of someone that's five foot six and he's like six feet tall wouldn't that be very easy to figure out i mean there's that there's the fact that his irish accent disappears uh there's the fact that in the 
third Darkman movie, they're like, oh, we can't break the 99-minute barrier. But he did but that. But that in happens the pre- in the second one. Yeah. But since they flipped the order. I know. That, oh, yeah. that, that killed me. You kind of like, just have to accept that stuff. It's like, what are you talking about? You already figured this out. But and they swapped like, the movies. And he's like, oh, why didn't I think of this earlier? This is so obvious. And then the third movie is like still racking his brain. Yeah. It's like. Uh, Which, there's little I, moments like that where I just threw up my hands. I'm like, what the hell? If Darkman 2 did come third and he had broken the 99-minute barrier and he could pose as anybody for any length of time in the sunlight, you've kind of broken the series. Like, maybe that Return of Durant was supposed to be the end and this was always supposed to be a trilogy because right. I don't even know what else you could do after that. It just feels like it's over. Well, a counterpoint to that, I do like how... And die, dark man, die. The very end, you know, the daughter of the villain gets burned. And so he gives up his skin for his her. To, nasty little vial of like liquid skin. That he yeah, he around. gives it liquid skin to the daughter so she can have her face back. And uh, I thought that was a nice way to end the series. I, like he's kind of being selfless and being truly a hero, but. And continuing on with this uh, stiff, cheaper version of the Darkman mask where they can't make the mouth move. So they cover it up with bandages. Whereas in the first film, the special effects are so good that they have no problem doing these like full close-ups. But at the end, when he like swears that he's going to continue in the night and continue to solve crimes by himself, they have to completely obscure half of his face to cover up the fact that they made this like immobile mask that's like too cheap to film convincingly. <laughs> yeah, it's it's hard to feel much, I think, in like the dramatic moments in the later films. I do think the movie does have like a the series does have like a dramatic center in him being this like hopeless romantic who just wants a normal life. Uh the same way that Batman like broods and stares at the fire. Which again is why the last sequel works so well. Oh yeah, he falls in love with two different women. We're in the I think in Return of Durant, there's like a side plot with a reporter and one with a stripper. And well, I love the thing with the report. Like she breaks the story on Durant and literally after breaking the story, walking out to her car, it explodes in a car bomb and she's gone. I think it's a thing for um, the scientist, like sister. And she's like a stripper or a, a sex worker or something. I did like the scene where he goes to the strip club and they're playing more and more and more. <laughs> that just kind of was a nostalgia thing for me. But yeah, there there's kind of a weird subplot there, but it's not really. There's important. no love in the uh, second one. I don't think. No, it's not convincing anyway, but in the third one, I feel like they get back to like the core aspects of the character, which is that like Phantom of the Opera longing from afar, not able to live a normal life anymore. It and is, that's very it is essential. Very, it is very Phantom of the Opera. I will say that. I actually saw the uh, 40s Phantom of the Opera remake recently, and it's like this like big-budget Technicolor remake with like Claude Rains uh, as the Phantom, and it feels like a very like Douglas Sirk melodrama. Ooh. Very beautiful costumes and production design, and just watching that after the Darkman series is like, oh, I get the core of this like more now. This hopeless romantic aspect of the character is very essential to it. Um, and it helps when you have someone like Liam Neeson who can sell the drama of that, like convincingly. Well, and also because it's kind of an homage to those universal, like you're saying, pictures from, you know, 20s and 30s. And Phantom was one of the first ones. It's in that wheelhouse for sure. Yeah. 
So I don't know. I think to summarize my opinion, like the original dark man is fucking great. Yep. The sequels are pretty awful. I think if you're going to check out any of the sequels, check out the last one, die dark man, die. Forget about I'd the say sec- that's like a three star home video horror film. Like it's fine. Yeah. For a straight to video thing. Like, yeah, it's worth checking out for sure. But I would probably ignore oh God. the first <laughs> sequel. It's it's pretty bad. It's pretty lame. Um, I, I do think this was a good pairing of films, too. Initially, we kind of paired them because you were on a Liam Neeson kick. But I think Sam Raimi and Jaime Colette Serra's like, directorial style is very similar. They are similar. In a way yeah. I didn't think about until I was watching them back to back. That's true. If you want more recommendations on stuff to watch this month, I just posted our annual like roundup of our favorite horror films we reviewed in the last year. If you look at, I think, the first day of October, it should say, like, Halloween Report 2018, the best of the Swamp Flicks horror tag. Mm-hmm. And it's basically just a roundup of, like, our favorite horror movies we reviewed from the last year broken down into category. So if you're looking at it for, like, a campy horror movie or, like, an artsy-fartsy one... I try to like separate them out by category um, so you can find recommendations for stuff to like add to your Halloween binging. Yeah. It's a, it's the time of the season, man. Yeah. Get on that horror movie thing uh, and expect orphan to be on the one for next year. Cause I'm going to write a review of that soon. I'm going to rewatch that. <laughs> and uh, we'll be coming back with two more of these episodes by Halloween from like horror themed aspects. I think we're probably going to continue this like big budget action horror, highly stylized style. Cause that's just kind of the kick we're on right now. So we'll see you all in a couple weeks. Bye, everybody. Bye.